You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English. And today we are also joined by Dr. Mike Bird. Mike is the academic dean and a lecturer in theology at Ridley College in Australia. He describes himself as a biblical theologian who seeks to bring together biblical studies and systematic theology. He is the author of 30, yes, count them, 30 books, including, but not limited to, The Story of God Commentary on Romans, An Anomalous Jew, Paul Among Jews, Greeks and Romans, Introducing Paul, the man, his mission and his message, and the New Testament in its world, an introduction to the history, literature, and theology of the first Christians, which he co-authored with this kind of no-name New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright. You can also find him on Twitter, where he is an absolutely wild follow, at mbird12. Dr. Bird, it is a joy to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Well, Kyle and JT and Jen, thank you very much for having me. I give you warm summer greetings from Melbourne. <laughs> Sounds lovely. Kyle, when when you say um, that he's at Ridley College in Australia, that's the equivalent of him saying that you're at Mosaic Church in the United States. <laughs> Is that for real? <laughs> I mean, I know, but for me, when I think of Australia, this is going to show my absolute ignorance. Recently, somebody told me Australia is as big as it is and it has multiple time zones in it. When I look at it on the globe, I've always been like, wow, I mean, that looks maybe a little bit bigger than Texas, maybe. Give or take. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Gosh. Also, slightly bigger, slightly bigger than Texas. Yeah, I think all the globes you were looking at were made in Texas. I spent some time in the army, and we have a we have have an armored warfare training area the size of Belgium. (laughs) So so we have basically the equivalent of a small like European country where we kind of allow our military tanks to play war. Sure, sure. That's good. So what you you would say that you guys are you're a larger country. Yeah, well, probably around about the size of America, probably a tad smaller than the, the than the continental U.S. Man, I feel incredibly embarrassed by my lack of geographic knowledge. I can go you one better. I can go you one better. I was once teaching in America. I asked some students, what's the capital of Australia? And one student said with a straight face, he goes, um, Hillsong? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I said, no, uh, Hillsong's a very big AOG church in Sydney, but it is not the capital of Australia. That would be Canberra. Canberra is the capital of Australia. This reminds me, do you guys remember that West Wing episode where they they show that oh, the, Gaul, the, maps. the Gaul Peters maps projection is wrong and they do like the actual projection? This is reminding me of that moment right now. I thought we'd just yeah, throw that in there. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. I'm, C- I'm CJ in this event. Yeah, I just wanted there? to make sure yeah. you knew that. No, I know that. I know that. Uh, Dr. Bird, I'm glad to have you on the show. And I, I think my first question that I really want to ask you is when are you going to really quit being lazy and start writing some books? A 30 books seems very small and I just wonder what are you doing with your time when you're when you're not not writing books, you know? I don't know, you know, I'm just a humble koala butcher from Warnambalubum <laughs> who writes a few a few books on the side every now and then. Uh, but yeah, well, I've just come off a sabbatical. I've just finished a writer, six, seven month writing sabbatical, and I did get a few things done during that time. So you can uh, watch out for my uh, next book, which is called um, 
12 ways to be a more biblical pet owner. Uh, <laughs> 19, 19 biblical tax shelters. And finally, my a biography, I am a theologian and so can you. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know what? Those, those all sound interesting. You know, I'm not a pet person. And I, I've outed myself on the show before as not a pet person. Are you Kyle, a pet person? Kyle, you're our pet on this show. Oh, I do not like that at all. That is. Let's go ahead, Carl. Engineer Brad, if you'll just cut that part out. Well, Carl, you, you could, it could be you're like you're like you're um Dobie to Jen's Harry. There you oh go. Oh my gosh, that is. That is uh, simultaneously one of the most honorific things that have been said about me, one of the most humiliating things. But I'll and take it. One, one day, one day, Jen will give you a sock, and then that will be the best thing that will ever happen to you. It's true. It's Kyle, true. you're a resident koala. Oh, I. This is this is going down a trail I did not intend for it to go. If koalas, um, if koalas were Baptists, they would look like you, Kyle. Wow. <laughs> Okay. Um, you know, uh, I am really glad to be starting off the season this way. Uh, let's just go ahead and get it all out. Um, why that we well, we have this esteemed New Testament scholar on? Let's use his time by insulting me uh, for the next forty minutes. Uh, and Dr. Bird, let's start here before we jump into Romans nine. How did we get here? Like, what is the flow and argument of the letter so far? Somebody's jumping in with us at the beginning of this season, and we're about to put them into the deep waters. How did we get to this part of the letter? What's been Paul's argument thus far? Okay, so Paul is writing from somewhere just outside Corinth. He's on the way back to Jerusalem. He wants to go from there to Spain via Rome. He wants to get the, the Roman church on side with his own message. Uh, but they're a little bit divided. There's been a lot of internal squabbling going on because a bunch of Jewish Christians have ex been expelled and then returned. But he wants them to be all singing off the same sheet of gospel music. So he's kind of laying out his apostolic credentials in terms of his ministry and his message. And he also wants to help them with some with some local issues that they're facing. So he kind of sets out the gospel at theological depth. Okay, I mean, I would call Romans an exercise in gospelizing. You know, put, putting the gospel out in theological depth. So he talks about his gospel to begin with in chapter one, how it, it's all about the revelation of the righteousness of God, which I believe is God's saving righteousness. And then he kind of shows how Jews and Gentiles alike are both in the dock when it comes to sin. You know, Gentiles, because of their ignorance, their idolatry, their immorality, their impurity, but even Jews who have the Lord un 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 under the covenant, they still face the judgment of God. Their election does not excuse divine impartiality and judgment. But, Paul says, but now God has revealed his saving power to Jews and Gentiles, and it comes through faith in Christ, whom God sets forth as a sacrifice for sins, as our redemption, and whom one can be justified. And he says we all need to be like uh, Abraham, who's the forefather of faith, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, Jew or Gentile, uh, Abraham's the footsteps of the one we walk in, because he was saved by faith. So Abraham is a prototype Christian. And then he kind of pans back a little bit, and he wants to you know, give a, a bigger scope. And he wants to talk about how all of humanity was, you know, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, and what you need is Christ. And in him there is union with him, and that gives you a power for moral renewal and transformation, which you could not find in the law, 
Okay, I think it's Romans 7. I mean, it's not in the law, but that moral reformation we need comes through life in the Spirit. And that's where he starts getting into chapter 8. And he ends on this really big triumphant note that, you know, we've received the Holy Spirit, we have the victory in Christ, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is a, is a wonderful climactic note uh, to end. I mean, you could really end the letter at that point and you would feel very satisfied, but the amazing thing is we're only halfway through at this point. Well, that was an incredible summary of the letter so far. It's almost like you've done work in this letter before. And so when we get to Romans chapter 9, I think that people have a lot of fear around dealing with this chapter in particular, right? Uh, and I think part of that is that maybe we have kind of a, a, uh, an abbreviated and abridged understanding of the audience of the letter. We kind of table them and then enter this chapter like it's in a vacuum and be like, all right, let's kind of sort out the philosophic theology that's happening in Romans 9 with very little regard to who received this letter. And you mentioned it briefly as we were thinking about what's been said so far, but could maybe the four of us real quick just kind of recap, who is Paul writing this letter to? All right, it's a church in Rome. It's comprised of Gentiles and Jews, but what do we know about the backstory of this church that Paul is addressing? Well, I mean, one of the things that Mike just helpfully pointed out for us is there's these two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, half of whom these Jews were expelled from the church. Gentiles begin to rise to power. They enter back into the church, and that for any church would create certain sort of tension and strife and who's rising to leadership and what's the theological values of the church and what is the actual gospel? What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to to follow in the footsteps of our forefather Abraham? Is it through faith? Is it through circumcision? And so there really is a lot of, of tension for this church. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I, that I wanted to highlight here too, and Kyle, I think you, you, maybe you're leading into this, but I mean, I, I'm not a, a Roman scholar, but I've read this book a lot of times, preaching through it right now. Uh, and one of the things that struck me for the first time, just preparing honestly for this podcast was, I mean, Romans 8, 37 through 39 is like the height of the letter in some sense, not the pinnacle of it, but in terms of just Paul's joy, you can just see him coming out. There's no height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. You just mentioned, you could almost close the letter there and it feels like a doxology almost. But then here in verse two, and I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish, mm. like the juxtaposition, the the almost like just a um, feels like a, almost like a car crash. Like you're just going as fast as you can. Everything's fine. And all of a sudden, bang. And I have great anguish in my heart. So, Mike, can you help us understand why why such a sharp contrast? Yeah, because, I mean, you know, Paul's got this wonderful thing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But then you've got to imagine, um, you know, a, a, a Gentile Christian say, yeah, Paul, that sounds all well and good, but here's the thing. We've got some local Jewish neighbors, and it doesn't seem like the love of God has really kind of um, stuck with them <laughs> because they're really not keen on this whole Messiah thing. And every time we try to discuss it with them, they get really, really aggro. <laughs> and in fact, it, it got so bad, there was like, you know, there, there was like almost a riot, which led to our, our Jewish Christian friends being exiled for several years. So if, if God's love is so faithful and enduring, and if God's faithfulness is so eternal, it seems as if God's faithfulness has failed the Jews 
because they haven't believed in the Messiah. So what should we think? Have, have they been like, you know, voted off the island like this is a reality <laughs> show and, and the Jews don't get the rose, so they get on the boat and, and you know, God's done with them? So does that mean that the gospel is now for the Gentile instead of the Jew? That God's doing a new thing? Um, I mean, and, and, sh and should we even try to, you know, ha have a more Gentile church and maybe, you know, put off all this, you know, stuff about the law, which some of us, well, some of us like for a little time, but the whole thing, I mean, was the law just one big mistake? Uh, so, so Paul's got to deal with that question. And this is not just a theoretical because, you know, the, the Gentile Christians in Rome, they're living in neighborhoods or in settings where there, where there are Jews. Maybe some of them, you know, kind of hanged out together, you know, in synagogues or they had various Jewish friends and associates. And this has been the issue that's divided them. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. and they've probably had a whole bunch of Jewish friends they've lost over whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. And maybe some want to go in a position that's even more radical than Paul. They know that Paul has said the law is you know, not a means to righteousness, and Paul has also criticized some of his fellow Jews for not believing in the gospel and, and how they oppose. So maybe some are even going in a more anti-Jewish direction. Mm -hmm. And Paul wants to put the brakes on that. He says, hey, 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 you know, Let's, not, let's remember that, you know, the Jews are, are God's people. And he, he opens chapter 9 talking about all their privilege. I mean, they've got the worship, the covenants. I mean, they are, they are ethnically, genetically, you know, linked to the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Okay, they share in the biology of the Messiah. I've got great lament for them. But then he wants to say, uh, basically, in the next three chapters, I think he's going to cover three areas. He's going to talk about Israel in the past. That's chapter 9, then Israel in the present, which is chapter 10, and then I would argue Israel in the future, chapter 11. That's a good little taxonomy you can use, which I got from a guy called Thomas Tobin. That's how I think it breaks down. But we're into chapter 9. Paul has got to deal with that question. Does the unbelief of uh, the Jews, the Jews in Rome, or all the Jews around the world, the, the, does that mean the word of God has failed? Mm -hmm. that's, that's the number one question he's dealing with. That's a, that's a good question that a dispensationalist would ask, right, Kyle? <laughs> Certainly, right? <laughs> but, you know, in verse 6, um, I think one of the things that really um, it immediately— there's a lot of these verses in Romans 9 that almost kind of shocked the system as a reader. Yeah. So in verse 6, when it says, But it's not as though the word of God is felled, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You're like, what? Right. Okay, so what? Are there, are there two different kinds of Israel that Paul is trying to distinguish? How could you, uh, how could someone who descends from Israel not be a part of Israel? So if somebody's reading this, they're listening to this and they're going, well, what would Paul have in mind? Uh, tell me, what's the picture of someone who descends from Israel but doesn't belong to Israel? What, what's Paul getting at here? It, we, you're saying that Romans 9 is a commentary on, on the past is, of Israel. What's happening here? Is Paul talking about two different entities? Yeah, I think he's talking about two different streams within Israel, okay? First thing to remember, Israel is always a positive term for Paul, okay? He can talk uh, some negative things about Ju Judaism, uh, but but Israel is always a positive term because that's what connects the Jewish people with their sacred history. That is the sacred people of, of the Jewish, um, uh, let me say that again. Uh, Israel is the, the name for the sacred people in the Jewish sacred history. 
Okay, so it's a good thing. But he wants to say, look, there's always kind of been um, two streams within Israel. There's what you might call an ethnic Israel, those who are um, genetically, biologically, or familiarly uh, a part of the uh, of the people of God. And then there's Israel according to the promise. So you could say there's Israel according to the flesh, and Israel's according to the promise. And the promissory Israel has always been a a subspecies or a subtype within ethnic or empirical Israel. So he, he's kind of defining it this way. And, and and this is where he says you see God's electing purposes being manifested within this promissory Israel. And they're the ones God has always used for his various purposes and on whom his plans have centered on. Now, at this point, some people want to jump to using terms like a true Israel or a spiritual Israel, and they would eventually have currency, particularly when you get in the second century, understanding the church and the Jewish people. But Paul doesn't go quite that far. He still wants to say that all these people are part of Israel, but there is kind of a... a, a, a subgroup with whom are the ones that the, the promises of God prophetically and historically uh, come upon. So is Paul, in, in Romans 9, is Paul trying to make the argument, listen, the promises of God to Israel have never always been for all of the ethnic or larger category of Israel. They've always been for a subcategory within Israel, the, the children of the promise. Is that what is that what he's saying? That's it. That's what he's saying here. But at the end of it, he wants to reconcile both together. He wants ethnic Israel or empiricalist Israel to join promissory Israel. That is his hope mm-hmm. by the end of chapter eleven. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's hoping that the Messiah's whole family, all of his Jewish brothers and sisters, will one day embrace faith in their Messiah. Right. Okay. So he, he wants the two to be united. He's not doing a kind of supersessionist thing where, you know, ethnic or empirical Jews have been voted off the island or shown the door or they had their bite at the apple they've lost. But he wants to explain the unbelief on this idea that there has always been a promissory Israel or there's always been another term you could use is there's always been a remnant or something like that. In fact, he'll return to this remnant language in chapter 10. So uh, not everyone in ethnic empirical Israel is Israel, and he uses various examples like, you know, uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, he'll, 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 he'll use those sorts of examples drawn from Scripture to make this point. Uh, you know what? I, I'd be curious, Jen, you've been teaching uh, uh, the Bible to people in the church for a long time. Careful. And... Uh, I yeah. know. I, I, I measured my words Since there. Since you were a wee little koala. I, I kept a, <laughs> Is this going to catch a, on? This might catch on. <laughs> it should not under any circumstance catch on. Um, uh, I'm not even sure that we're not being culturally insensitive to Dr. Bird on this call, if I'm being honest. Hey, I have, I have no problems with you henceforth being known as Kyle the Koala. Wow. I, it was hard for me to like you more. But Kyle Walla is what I'm headed for. <laughs> Kyle Walla. Okay. All right. You know what? I want, I'm, I'm going to now ratchet my question in a more aggressive way to you, Jen. Um, no, so when when you're teaching people the Bible in the church, you, I am sure you've run across many working definitions of how people view Israel. Mm-hmm. I feel like people, particularly in evangelical spaces in America, have very strong – they may not have a strong understanding of what the Bible says about Israel, but they have strong views on Israel. 
Yeah. So when you get to stuff like this and you're trying to help people understand, what do you feel like most often is like people's working assumption of Israel in the Bible? Is there a shared understanding that you think? Because when I read this, I was talking about this passage with my wife in preparation for a teaching I'm doing. And she was like, I don't understand. Are, are there two different Israels? Because isn't Israel the political state and Israel, the people of the promise, the same thing? It's like, well, I mean, you could read the Bible and go, yeah, I mean, you could see them as synonymous, but there's some Something else that's happening here. What do you encounter when you're teaching on Israel? Well, I mean, I've encountered the most friction about it with JT, who likes to play the the dispensationalist anytime this conversation comes up. I'm not a dispensationalist, up. Mike, but I went to Dallas <laughs> Seminary, so I know all the right <laughs> buttons to push. <laughs> I mean, really, the, the way that I've tried to help students just to think about it in the simplest terms is to give them a, a Venn diagram, and I hope that Dr. Bird is not going to tell me that that's a, a terrible mistake, um, where, where there's just two overlapping circles. Um, there's ethnic Israel, and then there is... Uh, for lack of a better term, spiritual Israel, and that um, those two circles overlap and where they meet in the middle, you have Jews who are true Israel, and you also have those outside of ethnic Judaism who are true Israel. Um, but that's, I mean, it doesn't always make everyone happy. And I, and I find that um, the, the, the influence of dispensationalism, particularly in the region that we're in, is so strong over the last, you know, mm. 30 to 50 years that most people have a hard time separating out ethnic Israel from anywhere they read the word Israel in a passage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big issue because you've got to negotiate the exegetical issues in a very mm-hmm. dense, mm-hmm. difficult chapter mm-hmm. across nine or 11. Then you've got the whole sort of, you know, Middle Eastern right. you know, peace issue. Yeah. Uh, you know, is the establishment of the state of Israel, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy? Right. Um, interesting fact, did you know that Israel only exists because of Australia? <laughs> no, I did not. That sounds I like can't wait to hear the rest to of this. <laughs> well, this is, well, the only reason Israel exists is because of the Balfour Declaration, and that only happened because of the British Mandate, and that's because the Brits defeated the Ottomans in the First World War. And do you know who won the main battle um, that gave the Brits the control of uh, Palestine in the First World War was Australia. We won the Battle of uh, the Battle of Beersheba, uh, which was the first, uh, sorry, the last successful cavalry charge of modern warfare. The wow. last oh, successful wow. cavalry charge, and that enabled the Brits to take over Palestine, leading eventually to you know Balfour Declaration and establishment. So it's it's because of Australia. In fact, my home state of Queensland, why Israel exists, and to all the Jewish people in the world. You're welcome. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that's that's a bit of a side trivia. Let's get back to the main. I mean, but there, there are some big issues because this, this affects things like attitudes towards the state of Israel. It affects attitudes towards the Palestinians, also to the pal- Palestinian Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this this is this is a very uh, it feels very, really safe uh, di- safe to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, not, nothing yeah. nothing controversial here. Nothing to um, uh, to talk about here. Uh, yeah, but there, there's a whole bunch of issues, and I do think we need to slightly disengage them a little bit. Um, I would I would not want to be interpreting Romans nine simply in light of the Israeli Palestinian. <laughs> conflict and debates about American foreign policy. <laughs> and uh, Australian that, foreign uh, policy. And Australian Apparently. foreign policy, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is, which is a, another deal. But that's, that, that's something like if I, if I was doing, if I was preaching or teaching of this, 
it kind of is the elephant in the room you have to deal with at some point. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, there is, and and there's a whole bunch of literature. I, I read a, a very good article, I think, from about goodness me, I think it was from about like um, two thousand by Daryl Bock in the LA, LA Times, which I thought gave a very very sober and sane evaluation of a, a Christian view of the, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I often return to that article and send students there. But it is something that comes up because whenever you talk about who is Israel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're going to get a, a spectrum of views, some very, very strong feelings because it's connected to all sorts of things ranging from, you know, the, the Holocaust and the dangers yeah. of supersessionism mm-hmm. all the way through to... Um, modern concerns about anti-Semitism, about the security of Israel, but what do you do for the plight of the Palestinians Mm -hmm. and all these sorts of things. So uh, if you're going to touch on this topic um, or teach it, at some point you're probably going to need to, you know, your people are going to want to know what you think on this and you might need to do a little bit of reading and um, figuring out uh, what you should think. Not not to the point where you need to become an expert on, uh, foreign policy, but you know, people are going to ask what you think on this topic. One of the things that I've noticed in my work in the commentaries, Mike, it, is they often say nine through eleven needs to be taken as a whole. Yeah, if you're yeah. reading nine by its, and of course that's true with every biblical text, but this seems to be one of those particularly sticky. You have to understand the argument as a whole, not not by mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. We live in a possession and money obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at Courage for Life Bible That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. Let me me ask you this. I mean, because I think often we approach this as asking primarily the question, who is Israel? Who is God's people? And that's obviously a question that Paul is dealing with. But I want to get your thoughts on if maybe there's a more pressing question for Paul. Because to me, it seems like the most pressing question is, is God faithful? Has God been covenantally faithful to what he said he was going to do? That's the question he's kind of asking in verse 6. Is it as though God's word or God's promise, God's covenants have failed? Would you frame it like that? I think that that's the best way, and certainly that's what he gets into in verse 6 of chapter 9. You know, has mm-hmm. the word of God failed? And he says, no, there's always been some Jews who have fallen by the wayside, okay? And that's because there is a kind of Israel within Israel. And he goes through and uses a whole bunch of scriptural examples to show precisely that. Uh, but then he brings it to the end, and he ends up with some quotes from Hosea, 
and from Isaiah to say, look, by the way, when God talks about, you know, uh, he has his, uh, his own promissory Israel, if he says, if you read the prophets, that's also going to include Gentiles. Mm -hmm. If you read Isaiah, that means even when everyone has kind of given up and abandoned or walked away, okay, it's going to include a remnant of Jews. So Paul sees this promissory Israel now consisting of these, these Gentiles um, who are outsiders and aliens and beyond the covenant? They've been brought in, and they're brought and they're brought together and beside with this remnant of Jews who remain faithful. So that's kind of, that's kind of where he ends up, and he says, and that is the proof that God's word has not failed. Yeah, but I think that the thing that's the most upsetting to the average reader of Romans is the stuff that happens in between the prophets' yeah. quotes and the portion that we just discussed about. And it, yeah. and in fact, mm. e I would even say that the the places that Paul takes his readers in the Old Testament are uh, they heighten their alarm. They don't reduce it. I mean, the, the mm -hmm. examples that he gives of Jacob and Esau and, and even a Pharaoh, you know, I mean, it, it, I've spent a ton of time in Genesis and Exodus in, in the Bible studies that I'm teaching. And every time we get to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, half the room about passes out, you know, why would God allow this to happen? Uh, and I think the story of Jacob and Esau too, you know, how could anyone, a parent would never choose between two children that one was going to receive favor and another was not. Why would our heavenly parent do something like that? And so I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on how, um, how Paul builds this tension and then resolves this tension as he's making his argument here. Yeah, I mean, he, he does build the, the tension up with the sense that God has an electing purpose. God does have some kind of partiality, mm -hmm. it would seem. Um, and, you, and you've got, the, you know, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's more of a Semitic idiom. I don't think God really hated Esau. Right. But God decided his electing purposes were going to go through, you know, Jacob yes. and not through Esau. And, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh God used Pharaoh's hubris and arrogance to be the means through which he would bring his people out of slavery mm -hmm. and create this nation out of slaves. And from them, they would be a light to the nations and they would be a great people. Mm -hmm. So God, and God is doing it through them, but not through others. Okay. And, and for some, it, that, that may not seem all that fair. And, and Paul continues through these three chapters. And he, he accents it time and time again, you know, and he talks about chapter 10, you know, um, the, the Jews have stumbled over the stumbling stone. You know, they, they've taken pride in their own righteousness rather than the righteousness that, that is by faith. And in chapter 11, uh, he continues, he even says the Jews in some sense have become your enemies because of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then you get to the end of chapter 11. And he makes this incredible statement that the Messiah will return to Zion so that all Israel will be saved. And he says God has consigned people over to disobedience so he can have mercy on them all. And the theme here is no matter Israel's uh, disobedience or disbelief, in the end you can be confident that God's mercy will prevail. But he doesn't tell us how. Mm -hmm. It's just left as an, an ineffable mystery. But when we read chapter 9 or 11, you know, you know, the, the hardening of hearts, the hating of Esau, you know, you know, treating human beings like they're mere pots. One can be used as kind of your nightly ablutions. We have to go to the bathroom and one can be used for holding perfume or wine or something. It seems so unfair and so arbitrary. But at the end, what Paul accents 
is the inscrutable mystery, mysterious, and the effe- efficacious, the effective mm. mercy of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, that's where he, I, I think he, he ends, which of course then gives way to an incredible doxology about who can understand his ways. Right. So God's electing purposes are always intended for salvation. You want to come preach at my church when I'm trying to I know, do this? I was about to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about to say well, <laughs> not until they get some Chick Fil A in Colorado. Oh, we've JT. got Chick Fil A. Oh, we've got, <laughs> got Chick Fil A. Oh, yeah, uh, we got Chick Fil A. I would not I have could, moved here I if could. we didn't well, have Chick Fil A. I've been to I've been to I've been to Denver, and the city has a very peculiar smell. Uh, that, I, that I'm not comfortable with. It's, it's called it's, glory. It's, <laughs> oh, it smells God. like it smells like an Arastafarian art teacher's <laughs> office. It's it's just fresh snow from the mountains. <laughs> yeah, it's something fresh from the mountains. Yeah, um, uh, Doctor Bird, I, I, just to kind of start uh, helping us to land here, I, I do want to ask. Um, okay, so somebody's been listening to this. And they're realizing, wow, this chapter is incredibly dense. Um, they probably knew that going into it. Maybe they read it before they listened to the show today. Or now, having heard the conversation, they're thinking, wow, this feels like a like a field of landmines. I, I would maybe ask this question two ways. Maybe you can answer it both ways. One, wh- wh- why would you encourage somebody to read Romans 9? Like for what profit other than, you know, just, yes, understanding the book of Romans, maybe why would you encourage someone to read Romans? And then what's like the biggest iceberg you would like steer clear of that, either a misunderstanding or a confusion or a, uh, a mishandling of the passage that's very common. So like, what's one reason why somebody should take time to really think through and read through Romans nine, even though it can seem scary. And what's one kind of sign you'd put up to say, Hey, maybe beware of ditch, you know? Yeah. Okay. I, th- I think there's a, a few things I would say. Paul is answering what is not a theoretical theological objection. He's dealing with the concrete local reality how do Gentile Christians and Israel's Messiah, how do they relate to the, their local unbelieving Jews? Mm. Uh, because there would be a very serious temptation to go an anti-Semitic route. I mean, the Roman cultural elites were virulently anti-Jewish. I mean, so you find a lot of anti-Jewish you know, propaganda and rhetoric and language amongst Roman elites. It would be so easy for the Roman Gentile Christians to go a similar route, okay? Paul doesn't want that. Read the first five verses. He is not interested in that, okay? Uh, at, at the same time, he earn, earnestly prays, hopes, and believes in a continued mission to the Jewish people. I think that's what the end of chapter 10 is about, where it talks about, you know, someone's got to be sent, someone's got to preach, mm-hmm. someone's got to go. He wants a continuing mission to the Jews in the hope that in the end all Israel will be saved. I mean, this is sort of the, the big picture thing I would take away, but that's what he's beginning to wrestle with in chapter 9. The thing to watch out for is uh, some people want to say, look, you know, 9 to 11, it's basically irrelevant. You could chat, you could go from the end of chapter 8, just skip <laughs> ahead to chapter 12, 1, you know, therefore a lot of the mercies of God, just, just avoid all that sort of Israel nonsense. Um, I, I, I'd watch out for that kind of view, but also watch out for the people who, who think that Romans 9 is meant to be a kind of um, octagon for Calvinist Narminians, okay? So it's okay. I mean, Paul's not interested. He's, I mean, he's talking about local Jews and Gentiles, but what he's really interested in is your view of Calvin and Calvin's view of predestination. 
and I thought, well, okay, well, okay, fair enough. In verse 16, um, you've got the emphasis. It doesn't depend on um, man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Okay, fine. There's a principle there that God's mercy is the root of all salvation, and it's not about foreknowledge or this. But Calvinism verse 8, that's just not the point, okay? That, that, go read Ephesians 1, go read Acts 13, 48, and debate, debate your sort of Presbyterian or Wesleyan friends, but that's not the issue here. Think about the local circumstances in Rome. Think what it means for the mission of the gospel in Paul's wider span of work and what it means for the Christians there to be missional in light of their unbelieving Jewish neighbors and in light of a hostile pagan world. That's the context I think we should be thinking about. I love that. I love that. Um, hey, this is not. This was not on your run sheet for questions. It's not related to Romans, but I'd be fascinated. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, you are heavily invested in the field of uh, Paul, uh, New Testament studies, blending together biblical and systematic theology. What do you see right now as some of the most interesting questions that are being asked in Paul's studies? Is there anything that you feel like right now is just like, wow, that is a pressing question. It's very, uh, the, the community of Paul's scholarship is engaged with it. There's very curious conversation happening around it. There's charity, but free exchange of ideas. Like, is there something that you feel like right now is just exciting in Paul? scholarship that you feel like is front and center? I would say at the moment Pauline scholarship, that's the study of the Apostle Paul, is divided into four quadrants. You've got a sort of traditional uh, Protestant reading of Paul. Then you've got the new perspective on Paul, which is largely focused on, um, you might call them ethnic or social issues. So when Paul talks about justification, he's primarily talking about the inclusion of Gentiles in the covenant or some variation of that view. And then you've got what's called the apocalyptic um, school of Paul, which is really focused on the discontinuities between um, Paul and any type of religion, including the Jewish religion. And then finally, you've got an interesting set of scholars uh, who have got the Paul within Judaism view, for whom they think that Paul himself you know, kept the law, uh, followed a Jewish way of life, and he's really just trying to stop Gentiles being hostile to Jews. Some of them even believe, uh, some of them, not all, but some of them think that uh, Jesus is the Messiah for Gentiles, but not for Jews. Uh, and, and in fact, there's, there's even a, a very peculiar alliance of some dispensationalist scholars and the sort of more secular Paul within Judaism crowd. It's, it's kind of a very um, interesting eclectic mix of people. So that, that that's probably the four quadrants of uh, scholarship at the moment. And all of them have got something a, a little bit sort of right, uh, something a bit wrong and something very wrong. Um, sometimes in all of them. So I, I tend to be a little bit eclectic. I, I'm probably, um, I mean, there's bits of, of, you know, of all four I like. I mean, like if you're reading chapters five to eight, the apocalyptic Paul sounds pretty good. Romans nine to 11, you can see Paul within Judaism happening. Uh, you read, you know, Romans one to four, well, or at least one to three, you've obviously got like, I think a traditional Protestant scheme of salvation. But when I get to chapter four, I, I feel like I'm in the new perspective side of things. So I, I kind of dot around which sort of, you know, school of Pauline scholarship I, I, I'm attracted to, depending on which part of Romans I'm reading at the time. Mm. But that's, that's sort of a, a, 
very brief survey of the current debates about Pauline scholarship. That's great. Dr. Bird, I told JT and Jen this was going to be a wild ride to have you on the show, and it was. Uh, <laughs> and I'm really honored that you were here. Thank you for making time to be with us. Wait, before we let him go, can we ask him one more thing? And maybe Absolutely. we can add it if it doesn't go terribly. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we've had a ton of conversation on the podcast. I wouldn't I would say relative to what we're trying to do, we've had a fair amount of conversation on the podcast about the current state of complementarianism. And, um, you know, I I, I pay attention to you on Twitter because I love to see what you're going to say anytime things stir up. That's not the only reason I pay attention to you, but I I do get the popcorn anytime there's an opportunity to read something that you're pushing back against. Um, And I would just be curious if you want to talk about this, um, why you care about this. Why do you care about the issue of women in the church? Yeah. Um, so, well, first of all, Jen, thank you very much for not asking me my views of CRT. Okay. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, please. If she mentions what do you think of CRT, I'm going to have to, like, I'm going to have to, like, face an oncoming bowel motion okay? <laughs> or something. Um, Would you really even have to okay. fake it? I mean... <laughs> A little bit. We need to make sure this stays in the podcast. Or I'd have to try and and juice one. Um, Oh, my word. So, yeah. Okay, for for a number of reasons, okay. Uh, A a bit of it's my own biography. Um, uh, Growing growing up, uh, I, I had in some ways a difficult upbringing. I had a very difficult relationship with my mother. Uh, my mother could be the my, my mother could be like Mary Poppins, the sweetest kindness person you you could you could imagine. Um, but three glasses of Chardonnay and she turned into Cruella Deville, and um, you know she 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 could be a very difficult person to deal with and quite um, uh, mean. And I, I found it very difficult to relate to women kind of growing up. And I didn't have any sisters, didn't have any female friends. Uh, I didn't become a Christian until I was 20, and I, I became a, a, you know, a complementarian. So I, and I was sort of, you know, in some churches that were, you know, um, sort of associated with John MacArthur. So, you know, like, like Grace Bible Churches, which was very good, very formative for me. So I was kind of a reformed Baptist mm-hmm. and quite, quite ardently and passionately complementarian. And, uh, so I was sort of, you know, full on in on, on that moment. Uh, but a, a number of things happened. One, I remember a Bible study where we had a, a lady leading us in, um, worship with a guitar. And one of the pastors, um, uh, said, no, you can't do that because that's a leading men. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, really? I mean, is that what Paul was worried about? <laughs> Women holding a guitar, you know, singing how great thou art. Is this really what Paul was worried about? And, you know, and then also reading Romans 16, you know, as I develop, become, you know, more of a biblical scholar and start to, you know, as a biblical scholar, you ask those questions kind of like, but really? Is it? And I noticed a whole bunch of things that, um, women are doing in the New Testament that did not fit the paradigm that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are women who seem to be deacons, who seem to be, uh, apostles who seem to be part of Paul's missional network, potentially even like house church leaders like Nympha in Colossae. Uh, you know, you've got those sorts of people. And, and, and then, you know, when I was reading some of the stuff like people like Wayne Grudem, who would have all those 
you know, incredible lists of all the things that women can't do. And I thought this makes wonderful sense if you're in a suburban, industrial, consumer-driven context where you can afford for dad work and mum stays at home. But that does not make sense outside of a sort of, you know, fairly affluent suburban consumer context. This does not make sense anywhere. My students from Africa, this does not make sense. Mm -hmm. My students from Indonesia, this does not make sense. This seems to be something that's come from a particular context. So, you know, and, and then I, and then just, you know, talking to women and some of the things that have been said to them and, and what they've experienced and what they've had to put up with a polite smile and knowing how me in some of my own views was part of that, um, that cycle, the process, the machine of alienation that they had. And then it gets even worse. Then you, you find out how this has led to things about attitudes towards sexual abuse, right. sexual violence, <clears throat> yeah. not, not just depriving women of their sort of, you know, their gifting. This is in the church. And yeah, and, and then it begins to provoke not just a sense of repentance or wanting to correct people. It, it, you do get a little bit of a, a bit of a righteous anger. And then you see the way someone like how Beth Moore gets treated. Um, who's the, probably the closest thing you have to a, a living, um, Baptist female saint. Well, she's not a Baptist saint. She's now an Anglican. Yeah, it's like, yeah, thank you. T taking that, stolen it. She's ours now. Too bad for you. Okay. So, uh, it's kind of like, kind of like that. And so I do, I do have a certain degree of zeal and passion for that, partly as an atonement for my own biography, where I know I have been dismissive of women. I did have a kind of, I have to call it, this is going to sound really contradictory, but I would call it a chivalrous misogyny. Okay. If, 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 if that can, that, that can make sense. Um, so I guess, uh, the reason why I'm so animated uh, against this is, uh, or against certain types of complementarianism is because, you know, I, I was once in it. I, I know what it is. I know the, the best of it and I know the worst of it. And I believe there is a better way of being male and female in Christ. There's a better way of, of empowering women in their giftedness and their ministry. And what I say to my friends is, look, you, you don't have to give up your complementarian. If you, if you believe in male headship, uh, you know, in, in maybe like the pastorate or even in the home, that's fine. But there's a whole bunch of really perverse paraphernalia that you have to shed. And there's a whole element of your complementarianism that really needs to be destroyed and you need to sanctify it in a new way. So I'm not saying you have to give up certain things because some of those things do have uh, a, a heritage in the church, like, you know, a male only pastor or senior pastor, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but there is, there are, there is a pernicious side to complementarianism and that really does need to be shed. Or alternatively, you could just become um, egalitarian, and then <laughs> and all our uh, problems would be solved. <laughs> I wish it was so. I wish it was so. I wish I could say that uh, egalitarian men never commit domestic ab right. abuse or never say anything yeah. misogynistic. Mm -hmm. Or I wish I could say that was so that it's, it's always rosier on the other side. Uh, but I, I believe egalitarianism is at least closer to the biblical vision. Uh, as, as I understand it. And, uh, I, I continue, I continue to throw my, um, uh, opinion around in the places that it's wanted. I do a regular chat with Amy Bird, yeah. who's got quite a lot to say on this topic. Uh, I've also enjoyed, um, speaking to two con controversial, um, 
female scholars in uh, Kristen Dumez and Beth Allison Barr, who I tend to get on well with, and also actually a, a very nice lady in my church um, uh, called Debbie Abraham, who's also very much interested in like post-purity culture. And I mean, that's the type of thing I'm, I'm, I'm interested in. You know, why is it that, you know, um, girls got purity rings, but, you know, boys were told boys will be boys. You know, I'm interested in that, in that kind of a stuff. And it, this, this is shaking the foundations and it is really, it, it, it is causing a lot of fear and consternation, but I think it's leading to, or to use my friend Amy Bird's words, it's u- leading to the sexual reformation that we need to have. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you don't all become um, uh, egalitarian Anglicans like me, although I continue to pray, uh, <laughs> even if you don't all become egalitarian <laughs> Anglicans like me, I think people like Amy Bird, Kristen Dumez, and Beth Allison Barr can at least enable you to come to a more biblical, a more loving, and a more authentically Christian complementarianism. That's a very good answer. Um, thank you. Now, on CRT, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, if you don't like about my answer on that, we can talk about January 6th. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> the designated hitter rule, my opinions on the gold standard, and, and, and importantly, the number one debate, In-N-Out Burger or Whataburger? Uh, Where do I stand? Sure. These are all big ones. That last one, though, will get you kicked out of Texas. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And uh, yeah. that's not a good list to be on. Thank you for being uh, with us, Kyle, and uh, I'm looking forward to um, attending your first charity event about say, about building a koala sanctuary in Texas. <laughs> because SBC funded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. because we know that there is not enough koalas in Texas, and those things are just so cute to stare at. It's true. So I, uh, I look forward to being invited to your first koala safe haven fundraiser, and uh, we'll, we'll have a great time. We'll see. I'll tell you what. I'll pull some strings. Maybe we can even get you, you Jackman. Oh, no promises. I'd show up for that. No promises. But uh, if, if it's for a good cause, like Save the Koalas, maybe we could get you Jackman. Oh, we'd, right. we'd cater in that. Chick-fil-A for that, for sure. Yeah, we would. Oh, we'd yeah. get you some nuggets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, thanks for coming on the show. I want to really encourage our listeners to check out Dr. Bird's books. Uh, the ones I mentioned in the introduction would all be really helpful as you're navigating Romans or any of the other uh, Pauline letters. But two of my personal favorites outside of that would be what Christians ought to believe, an introduction to Christian doctrine through the Apostles' Creed, which is just fantastic. And then also the one I mentioned in the intro, the New Testament and its world, an introduction to the history, literature, theology of the first Christians. Both of those would be immensely helpful to you. You can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can check us out over at patreon.com slash knowingfaith. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. <laughs>